Michael, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Wendy. Great to be here. So, uh, guys, my name is Wendy Myers of MyersDetox.com, and I wanted to have Michael McAvoy, who is one of the practitioners I really, truly respect. I think he's so brilliant. So your site's Metabolic Healing. We actually have two websites, uh, MetabolicHealing.com, and then the other website is for our software. That's True.Report. Okay, great. Fantastic. So you have great software, which we're going to talk about in a minute, where you can plug in your liver labs to it. And so, so we're going to talk today about liver enzyme testing. So when you go to your medical doctor, you, you know, ask the doctor to check your liver enzymes. They do this periodically in your uh, routine exam and routine checkups that you do. And so sometimes they come back elevated. And I think people don't have an understanding of what these liver enzyme labs mean. So let's talk about um, some of the common conditions that can be revealed on a liver enzyme test done with a doctor or a functional medical practitioner? So Wendy, there's, um, there's actually quite a bit of useful um, data that you can extract from your standard blood chemistry panel. And um, over recent years, there's been a, a sort of a flurry of direct-to-consumer lab test companies that enable um, basically anybody to order a blood test in the, in the United States. And uh, if you start to get good at this, you can start to really understand just really how useful um, basic blood chemistry markers can be when trying to put together some sort of a health program. And so there's a, there's a whole handful of markers on your, uh, your, your metabolic panel blood test that can reveal uh, useful information about liver function. Not only liver function, but I should also say, you know, the whole kind of function of the hepatobiliary system. So the hepatobiliary system encompasses not just the liver, but also the, the could also um, include the, the bile ducts as well as the gallbladder. And so, as you know, these are um, the major organs, they're often referred to as the major organs of uh, detoxification or biotransformation. And... Um, your, your standard blood test does a pretty decent job of providing sort of a basic, basic overview of the hepatobiliary system. And uh, what we're going to talk about today are just some of these, you know, useful markers, as well as I'm, I'm happy to also provide the sort of reference ranges that I look for when I'm interpreting a blood test. Yeah. And so, uh, so talk to us about a, a few of those markers. So when you go to the doctor, you get your lab results. What are the, the common markers that we see on these lab tests and what do they mean? Yeah, so the most um, mark, the marker that's the most relevant to me in terms of um, uh, liver function, and, and actually one of the most important markers on the blood test in general is the serum albumin level. Okay. And the albumin is one of the most, if not the most important blood protein. And why it's so relevant with the liver is that about 90 to 95% of all of the albumin that is circulating in your bloodstream is derived from your liver. So it makes it, an, whenever you see the albumin level decreased, it's a pretty strong indication that the liver is unhappy or the liver is toxic or there's liver damage or there's suppressed liver function. And um, so albumin, I want to just talk about some of the sort of basic functions of albumin. So albumin is a very large protein and it 
it transports very important nutrients to the cells and the tissues. You can think of it as sort of a delivery truck. And uh, albumin can transport many of our hormones, um, and that includes our thyroid hormone, but albumin also is going to transport um, electrolytes and different minerals like calcium, for example. And uh, uh, the albumin is uh, comprised of a number of different uh, amino acids. So it's actually a very large protein, if you will. And um, it, one, of, one of the types of amino acids that really makes up a, a major portion of albumin is uh, an amino acid known as cysteine. And cysteine is a sulfur-containing amino acid. And it's, uh, cysteine is, is the sulfur component of the, of the cysteine amino acid is known as a thiol. And thiols and sulfur in general are very, very important for the function of the liver. Um, we'll get into this a little bit later, but know for now that your liver needs some very basic nutrients in order to function. Um, and if we kind of break it down, what are the most simplest, basic, and important nutrients that the liver needs? Um, it turns out that these same nutrients are also needed to synthesize albumin in the liver which again is the major hepatic liver transport protein. Um, so we're looking at water. So you gotta be optimally hydrated, number one. You gotta make sure that you're consuming adequate fluid on a daily basis. Not diuretics like coffee or alcohol or tea, but actually water. And we can get water from vegetables as well. Um, and we also need amino acids, we need protein. So there's studies going back to the early 1970s that clearly show that. Uh, there's about 12 or 13 amino acids that are really important in order to synthesize more albumin. And so by eating, you know, good quality protein, you know, for example, a good source of amino acids is whey protein or eggs. Excellent source of protein that will, those amino acids in there will help to synthesize more albumin in the liver. And I can give you, if you like, I give some case study examples of what can really go wrong in a serious case where the albumin level is really, really low. And um, so the albumin is really one of the most important um, blood chemistry markers. And it's, it's a major marker that, that can give us information about liver function. I always want to see on a blood test that the albumin level is between about 4.1 and 4.8. And, uh, Whenever the albumin level drops under four, I know that there's some sort of acute stress, acute inflammation, and it usually indicates that there's, there's either liver cell damage or diminished, what we call diminished liver function. So um, albumin is a huge marker, and uh, we can really use basic nutritional practices the fundamentals of health to really, really optimize um, our liver's production of the albumin. Now, in cases where the albumin level starts to precipitously drop, you know, in the three, in a 3.5 and, uh, and even lower, the lower the albumin drops, the more we start to see changes in what's called the osmotic pressure, okay? And that basically, what you need to know is that has to do with the fluid balance between cells and tissues. So if you don't make enough albumin, this can be a cause of edema, a, a fluid accumulation. I had a client once with ulcerative colitis, and he was nutritionally depleted, okay? And his albumin was circ circling around 
Okay. Now the albumin doesn't really fluctuate that much. It's, it's in a very narrow range most of the time. And his was extremely low and he developed extraordinary fluid retention in his lower extremities. And the first thing that I said was, because uh, he didn't know what was causing that, I said, go get a blood test. I'll bet anything your albumin level is under three and sure enough it was. And uh, I, because this can be a very serious uh, condition when the albumin drops this low. <clears throat> so um, the actual therapy that I recommended was that he increased his intake of um, red meat to something like uh, one and a half to two pounds of red meat for about five to seven days. Wendy, within about seven days, his albumin level restored to normal and the fluid in his lower extremities had mm. cleared. <clears throat> so it should really, really alert you that albumin is really a very significant marker, um, not only of liver function, but it, it really plays a really important role in, in the overall body's health. So the opposite of that, say if you're on a vegan diet, um, how is that going to throw a wrench into your albumin? And can being on a vegan diet long-term cause low albumin? We, we very frequently see um, vegan diets are not, they don't contain enough um, amino acids, and it's primarily the amino acids that you need um, to, you know, to synthesize uh, the blood protein albumin. So you, you need adequate sulfur in the form of cysteine and or methionine, which can make cysteine. And vegan diets don't contain any cysteine and they, they typically lack uh, methionine, which is an essential amino acid. Um, vegan diets also usually, they do lack vitamin B12, as well as a number of other amino acids, such as uh, you know, the, there's a struggle to make branch chain amino acids typically on a, on a vegan diet. So. Um, uh, that study going back to the early 70s showed that you need about 12 or 13 amino acids in order to make, to really to, to pump up the albumin level. Now, in cases of severe um, albumin deficiency, which the, in the medical terms is called hypoalbuminemia, I'm typically not only recommending an increase in, in protein intake and amino acid intake, but I'm also going to recommend an in, intake, increasing your intake of uh, what are called low molecular weight antioxidants. So this is basically vitamin C, uh, vitamin E, alpha lipoic acid. These are very simple supplements that can actually, what they do is they protect albumin's antioxidant ability. So albumin functions also as an antioxidant. And in fact, the thiol is a very important antioxidant. So I usually recommend these low molecular weight antioxidants to support the body synthesis and function of albumin. And we do see that this is, we do see that this is often a problem um, in vegan diets and even in vegetarian diets. Some people um, simply require much higher amounts of protein than other people do. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and it's contrary to what some people might typically think as like an ideal detox diet. Some people think of getting rid of animal protein that's great for detox. No, it's not. Uh, but everyone's a little different, but just in general, you know, you know you're not going to, your liver's not going to perform as well on a vegetarian and or vegan diet. So let's talk about the, the next one, globulin. So this is commonly on liver, liver testing. What does that mean? Yeah, so globulin is the other fraction of the total protein. So the total protein is comprised of two proteins. It's the albumin and the globulin. The albumin is very specific to hepatic function, 
whereas the globulin is actually, a, that's actually a sum of these uh, subglobulin fractions, right? And so the globulin, <clears throat> the globulin is often an, it is in a marker of either uh, immune function or the globulin is, it can also be um, reflective of digestive function. So oftentimes if somebody has low stomach acid, for example, we see an elevation in the serum globulin. And that's likely due to a certain immunological response in, in, in response to a deficit of, of a digestive function. Um, so the globulin level, we typically want to see that between about 2.2 and about 2.8. If you're in US units, if that's an SI, that's like 22 to 28 or something like that. But um, if you start to see the globulin deviate either above 28 or below 22, I'm definitely looking for some sort of digestive distress, hypochlorhydro, which is low stomach acid. Uh, mind you, if you have low stomach acid, this could also indirectly impair the liver's function because of the fact that you need stomach acid to digest and utilize vitamin B12 and amino acids. So it really does go both ways. But go, goes both ways. The body knows how to be healthy. You need to give it what it needs. And then the next one is bilirubin. So this one is really, really key. What does that mean for our liver health? So bilirubin is a very interesting um, blood marker. And what we know, and uh, I should point out that um, bilirubin is a waste product. It's sort of, but but in, in reality, the body doesn't ever waste anything. The body is always reusing its, its resources and recycling different things to be reused. And so the bilirubin is actually the product of the breakdown of red blood cells. So, you know, the red blood cells, which are the most abundant cell in the human body, um, they get broken down in the spleen. The spleen um, separates out the, uh, the, 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 the hemoglobin from the red blood cells. And the end product of that is that you have un what's called unconjugated bilirubin, okay? So um, then that unconjugated bilirubin gets sent over to the liver where it gets what's called glucuronidated and conjugated. So that unconjugated bilirubin from the red blood cells being broken down forms conjugated bilirubin in the liver. The conjugated bilirubin then gets um, incorporated into the bile, which gets squeezed out of the liver cells and deposited into the gallbladder, which then the, the gallbladder then secretes bile into the small intestines for digestive purposes, as well as waste removal. This is all the toxins that get sort of filtered out by the liver, conjugated up, they get sent into the bile, and then they get squirted into the intestines. So the bilirubin is on board during this process. Now, we, we, we actually know that it turns, so as it turns out, we, we've always sort of thought for decades, and med medicine still pretty much thinks that the only real um, relevance to bilirubin if it's, is if it's elevated, if it's high. But that's actually not true. The scientific literature actually shows that low bilirubin can actually also be a problem. And both can reflect poor um, hepatic function. So um, bilirubin actually, as it turns out, is actually an antioxidant. Remarkable. 
that a waste product is also an antioxidant. And there's actually been some statistically relevant studies that show um, inverse correlations between high bilirubin and breast cancer. Think about that. And that's because of, of the various antioxidant protective properties that the bilirubin has in the blood. So we really want to see bilirubin somewhere between about 0.4 and about 1.0. And forgive me, I can't remember what that is in SI units off the top of my head, but I think it's as high as 17.1 if I remember. Um, I'm just used to more interpreting U.S. blood tests. But the bilirubin, as I mentioned, if we start to see the bilirubin is elevated, if it's above 1.0, it suggests that there's probably some sort of Con, there's some sort of uh, congestion in either the liver or the gallbladder or the bile ducts. And that, depending on how high the bilirubin is, that can be anything from something as serious as a liver or a biliary a tumor or a gall tumor or a gall stone or something in the gall, the common bile duct that's causing an obstruction and a buildup of the bilirubin. Um, those are the most common causes for um, high bilirubin. There is a genetic condition known as Gilbert's syndrome, um, which tends to feature um, basically a problem in conjugating it. And so you wind up with higher levels of bilirubin um, in the blood. So that can be the cause of why somebody's bilirubin is historically mildly elevated. And um, that can cause, we can get into that. that. That can be associated with all kinds of other problems. But we often see that the bilirubin level is a good reflection of overall hepatobiliary output. <clears throat> In other words, how well the bile acids are flowing or if there's a tendency for um, stagnation in the bile ducts or in the gallbladder, some kind of stagnation. And um, we can use different types of, you know, in addition to our, our, our dietary protocols, we can use basic nutrients to help support that process of bilirubin conjugation. We could use a nutrient like calcium D-glucurate, for example. We could use a little bit of milk thistle and dandelion root or um, some, some kind of a bitter to help support that phase two process that helps to conjugate that bilirubin. Yeah. And what else could you do? Could you do liver flushes or coffee enemas or anything of that nature to help improve this marker? Yeah. So um, now again, depending on why it's elevated, if somebody does in fact have gallstones, that's going to require a, a different protocol than uh, if it's just, uh, you know, Gilbert syndrome, for example. Um, if it's gallstones, you have to use something that's going to help to break down the, those stones like, for example, phosphoric acid or dicalcium phosphate or a combination of that with bile salts um, plus bitters. So it, it, it sort of depends on each case. If it's, if it's uh, just mildly elevated, if the bilirubin is slightly high, um, I'm typically going to uh, look at using, um, you know, your basic liver supports. As I mentioned, calcium to glucate. I may use a little bit of N-acetylcysteine and then retest the blood in a month to see if the markers come down a little bit. I can also use, and I should point out, you can also have from the lab tested both fractions of the bilirubin. So as I mentioned, the spleen 
will form the unconjugated fraction and then the liver will conjugate it. So you can actually have those tested as what's called direct and indirect bilirubin. And so if the indirect bilirubin is elevated, um, then it suggests that it's um, a conjugation problem. If both of them are elevated, it typically is going to reflect more of a cholestasis problem. So uh, it's useful to get both of those markers tested if you want to go for it. If you're seeing something that's really abnormal or if you suspect Gilbert syndrome. Okay, fantastic. And then one of the next markers on a lab is alkaline phosphatase or ALP. What does that mean and what do we do about it to improve it? Yeah, so um, the next set of markers on your blood, your blood tests are going to be your liver enzymes. And so this is going to be the, uh, the alkaline phosphatase, the ALT, otherwise known as amino, uh, ALT, which is alanine aminotransferase, AST, which is aspartate aminotransferase, and then uh, GGT, which is gamma glutamyltransferase or transpeptidase. And then the fifth one that is always tested by is also known as LDH or lactate dehydrogenase. And those are the five major, um, what are called metabolic enzymes. And uh, when you look at a blood test, what's important to note is that those five metabolic enzymes, they are in fact found throughout the entire body. They're not just in the liver or the gallbladder, but they can be in, they can be in the LDH is in the blood cells, red blood cells are also in the, the bone. Same thing with the alkaline phosphatase. So <clears throat> the alkaline phosphatase and the LDH are not entirely 100% specific to the liver or the gallbladder or the biliary duct. So I'm looking at those, I call those LDH and ALT, ALP, alkaline phosphatase, those are secondary liver markers. In other words, if they're elevated, we don't always know if it's from the liver or somewhere else. For example, if somebody has osteoporosis, the alkaline phosphatase level could be elevated. Or if you're a child under the age of 18, the LDH and the ALP could be elevated just because of bone growth and normal development. So you don't always know definitively if the elevations of ALP or LDH are because of the liver. If you want to really get specific, at looking at the liver, you're looking more at the GGT or GGTP, same thing, gamma glutamyl transferase. That enzyme is very, very um, almost, you know, the probably the most definitive of the enzymes as it relates to hepatic and biliary function as, in terms of being an enzyme. And basically what you need to know is that GGT actually as a functional enzyme, what it does is it actually transports the amino acids that make our glutathione <clears throat> into the cells. So uh, glutathione, as you've probably heard Wendy talk about before, is a very important antioxidant that gets produced and in, in it's, it's really one of the most important antioxidants that the liver makes and it, it conjugates different toxins. It's essential for uh, the removal of toxins and heavy metals, and that also um, includes, you know, mercury and, and, and heavy metals and chemicals and xenobiotics. Well, it turns out that GGT, it's actually, its action is to synthesize 
these three amino acids that make our glutathione. So our glutamine, cysteine, glycine, GGT is catalytically acting to bring those together and drive them into the hepatocytes. So that's, that means that if we see a GGT level that's moderately elevated, and I'd say anything above 30 US or SI units, anything above 30 is a pretty darn good indication that there's some type of liver toxicity that's going on, something that needs to be evaluated, maybe in some extreme cases, evaluated further. Like if it's above 100, for example, I would do some you know, imaging testing with your doctor. Or if it's moderately elevated, like in the instance of somebody's drinking a lot of alcohol on a regular basis, we commonly see that that GGT level is in the 50s or higher, indicating hepato, you know, hepatic damage, cellular damage in the liver. So um, main thing that we're using and recommending there, in addition to increased protein intake in, the, in quality amino acids, I'm recommending for the GGT, if it's elevated, I'm recommending B vitamins, and I'm recommending uh, N-acetylcysteine at about you know, anywhere from 600 to 1,800 milligrams a day. Yeah, and stopping the alcohol. Yeah, thank stopping you. Stopping the, the toxin. Alcohol. Right, and stopping so the toxins that are aggravating that problem. <laughs> exactly. It's the most important thing. Yeah. Right. The, the alkaline phosphatase, we want to see between about 60 and 100. Now, if there's really something wrong with your liver, something seriously wrong, um, let's just say, for example, if you've got um, cholestasis because of a gallstone, for example, it's common that all of these enzymes are going to be elevated. Usually the GGT and the ALP are the ones that are going to be elevated the most. The alkaline phosphatase, while it's from the bone, it's found in the red blood cells, it's also found in a very large concentration in the bile ducts. And so um, when there's an obstruction of the bile ducts, the ALP and the GGT whoop, go, go right up. Um, the other enzymes that we look at are the... Uh, the, uh, as I mentioned, the LDH, lactate dehydrogenase. And again, that one is, that can shift for different reasons. Um, type 2 diabetics tend to have higher levels of LDH because it, it, it's involved in the conversion of, uh, it's called pyruvate and lactate, okay? And when we see elevations in the LDH, we don't always know if it's because of a hepatic problem or um, because of something else. Um, you know, in the case where I've seen in, in people that have had liver cancer, for example, or breast cancer metastatic to the liver, um, where there's a, a tumor in the liver, that LDH level can be in the thousands, as can the other enzymes as well. So you know something's really wrong if, that's, if it's that high. Um, then the other, the, bringing it up the rear, the, the other two enzymes that are, are really relevant for hepatic function are the ALT and the AST, and um, they usually move together. When the AST is high, the ALT is almost always elevated with it. There are a few really rare cases where the ALT is significantly higher than the AST, and that can be a problem with ammonia toxicity. Uh, for example, one cause, uh, there's some studies that show that if the ALT goes really high above the AST, like two to three times higher, it, it has a, a higher, you know, mortality, a higher rate of mortality at that level. So, but these are, these are enzymes that are also found in the liver and the gallbladder. And uh, 
usually if 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 the ALT and the AST, if there's a liver problem, the GGT, ALT, and AST are all high together, and they're usually around the same level. GGT, you know, they could they could obviously be anywhere, but if there's a problem in the liver, you're seeing a pattern, you're seeing a trend among all of these different metabolic enzymes. They all tend to go higher. So are there any other tests that you recommend, recommend that would be helpful in addition to the standard liver enzyme panel that's done at your doctor's? Yeah, so um, there's, a, there's a couple of other specialty markers that I like to look at um, on other functional tests that can provide some more useful data. So, um, for example, on the organic acids test, um, sometimes I like to look at the, what's called the hippuric acid or hippurate, and that's found on the, uh, the Great Plains organic acids test. And then on the Genova diagnostics test, maybe Great Plains one day will carry, it's called the glucuronic acid. And um, what you need to know is that both of these markers are, are telling us uh, similar things. So just to kind of review the sort of ba very, very basic um, process of hepatic uh, biotransformation detoxification, you've got what are now, we're calling three phases of detoxification. So um, the first two phases are basically phase one is like the, what we sometimes refer to as the activation phase of the liver. So certain molecules become more reactive. It's the hydroxylation phase. And then the phase two is the deactivation phase. So you've got methylation, acetylation, glucuronidation, amino acid conjugation, glutathione conjugation. So these phase one and phase two need to be in balance with each other. When the hippuric acid or the glucuronic acid levels are elevated on the urinary organic acids test, that is an indication that you have fast phase one, slow phase two. That means that your phase two hepatic enzymes are running slower. That's a problem because when, you're, when you hydroxylate a toxin, like say benzene, for example, or estrogen, for example, when you hydroxylate it, you are making it more reactive. You're adding a hydroxyl group onto it. It's becoming more reactive. It needs to be conjugated with a phase two process. And so when we see that the glucuronic or the hippuric is high, it signals to us that there's an imbalance between phase one and phase two. High phase two, phase one, slow phase two. So those are the other two markers that I like to look at for functional assessment of hepatic activity. Now, there's other clues that I could be looking at. You know, I often look at, and we can get into this later if you like, some more specific markers in the genetics, which could tell us if there's, you know, if there's a problem, a tendency towards a problem somewhere in the, the liver's detoxification system. So we can look at that in different ways. Oftentimes, I like to just evaluate you know, some basic symptoms, uh, look at what a person's diet looks like. Um, are you consuming Tylenol on a daily basis? Tylenol is hepatotoxic, and the, the scientific literature is very clear. Tylenol inhibits glutathione in the liver, and there's uh, adverse reaction warnings um, that, that has been given by the FDA very recently because 
of Tylenol's toxic effect on the liver. So I like to evaluate basic things, you know, person's environment, you know, uh, do they live near uh, a chemical factory where they, their air that they're breathing in may be toxic. Just those alone could be really good indicators of a need to be looking deeper at liver function. Yeah, I think people don't realize that there's there's tons of people, especially in the older population, that they have aches and pains and joint pain. They take Advil and or Tylenol on a daily, daily basis, and they don't realize that they're hindering their liver's ability to detox their body because it's dealing with this other toxin all the time. Well, and especially if there's any type of genetic weaknesses in the glutathione pathway, which there usually is, there usually are. Um, or if a person has low thyroid function, and that can, in, that can by itself impair the hepatic function. You know, we know from the literature that, um, you know, people that have lower levels of thyroid hormone tend to have redox problems. And so that's sort of recycling your glutathione, if you will. So we know that, uh, and also hypothyroidism can, can feature low levels of the, of the albumin. It can actually cause that. And when you correct the, the, the thyroid, you, you often correct the albumin. So you need to think functionally about how, we need to think about how other things are affecting the liver. Yeah, and then also, does any of these liver enzyme tests really give a clue as to how well the liver is detoxing, like how well it's breaking down toxins and then taking out the trash? Because it, it's to a certain degree a little bit myopic. It does give us... And direct and indirect indicators, but it's not as good as, uh, there's better testing out there that we could be doing that's not available to, to in, in the United States. Yeah, you know, that's a good point, is that there's always a limitation to any kind of a test that you're doing. So um, when you look at a basic blood test, you know, you can have something functionally going on with your liver that isn't totally evaluated by just looking at the blood test by itself that makes sense so like for example if you have high glucuronic acid that might not show up on your standard blood test your liver enzymes may not be high um, so a functional test like that can give you a little bit more insight you know you could also do um, you know, you could run a, a plasma glutathione level, for example, or a red blood cell glutathione level, or, you know, some people use other tests to assess that. But I would be looking at that or maybe, you know, the amino acid cysteine, for example, because that plays such an important role in the liver specifically. So um, there's, yeah, there, I think there's a difference. We, need, we should distinguish between a functional test and a sort of quote-unquote diagnostic test, which is more what blood tests really are were designed for. Even though you can get, you know, extract usable data from from blood chemistry, they only like like any test will only go so far. So a genetic test, I, I like to evaluate some of the genes because we know that there's, you know, obviously everybody has genetic variations, genetic strengths, genetic weaknesses. Everybody does. It's part of the, the sort of natural selection process that we're all sort of a part of, right? So it turns out that there's a number of genes that can, it can directly affect our ability to detoxify. 
And um, that includes our liver's ability to function. So as I mentioned, the UGT1A1, UGT1A3, UGT1A6, these are our major glucuronidation genes that um, if mutated, quote unquote, um, can lead to, will, will lead to some type of uh, conjugation problem in the liver. And it's often diagnosed as Gilbert's syndrome or Gilbert syndrome. And uh, that's one example. There's many others. You know, glutathione transferase, GSTM1, that's another gene that uh, plays an important role in making the, uh, you know, the transport for the glutathione amino uh, antioxidant. And then you have uh, this, you know, your, your methylation uh, genes like MTHFR and MTRR. Remember, we need vitamin B12. We need all of our B vitamins. The, the liver is constantly using up our B vitamins in order to function. Our B vitamins are like the spark plugs, the catalytic enzymes that are driving the, the, the engines of the liver. And so um, high-performance organs like the liver, which is filtering the blood, is, is, producing hor is conjugating hormones, is producing proteins, you know, the thousands of different responsibilities that the liver has as an organ, it demands a huge amount of energy on a regular basis. And so you need to optimize your nutrition to make sure you're getting all of the most fundamental ingredients that are going to be driving those catalytic reactions. Yeah, when you're getting this from food, B vitamins are found primarily in animal proteins. So again, problematic if you don't eat any animal protein at all. And, and um, mm -hmm. yes, and so, so how do toxins exactly, like we can describe it, overload and affect liver function? Because we're exposed to so many toxins on a daily basis in the air, food, and water, and our liver just has this huge job to break this stuff down and then transport it out of the body, take out the trash. What is going on with people today? Why are people's livers so overworked and congested today? Well, I think it's a combination of uh, you know, a variety of factors. So number one, you've got the levels of exposure are higher. And if anybody's ever run um, the GPL, Great Plains Tox Urine Test, which evaluates for, you know, dozens of different chemicals, you're going to find that every human being living in modern society has elevated levels of, of, of many of these. Um, even if you're eating all organic and, and think you're, you know, living as healthy as you can, you're unable to, to not be exposed to toxins on a daily basis. So there's that component. The other component is simply that, um, a person's diet can be lacking in several essential nutrients. Um, a person is under a higher amount of stress, which places more, you know, strain on the, the body's metabolic systems. And, uh, you know, we don't, we don't sleep as well as we need to. We, our circadian rhythms are, are off. We know, for example, that, um, <clears throat> we know that if you, if you have disruption in the circadian rhythms, which I would argue probably most people do today because of Wi-Fi and because of constant blue light exposure from screens, that that disruption of the circadian biology has a direct inhibitory effect on the function of the liver. Um, for, to give you an example of that, they, there's a, the, the circadian clock genes are in, in a part of the brain known as the SCN, okay, the suprachiasmatic nuclei. And the, these contain all the clock genes, 100,000 nuclei of clock genes that 
are, there's, are all entrained by the light and the dark cycles in the, in, in, from the day into the seasons. And what the researchers did was they actually removed, they damaged this part of the clock genes of these mice. And what they found was that the mice developed fatty liver. Hmm. They developed fatty liver, which tells you that the circadian biology is controlling many of these downstream biological processes, including the liver function. So we talk about non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, which is you know, very common if you're a diabetic. If, you're, if, you're, if the weight of your liver is overloaded with toxins and is, is basically just not flushing out, you, you are often diagnosed with NAFLD. But what they don't tell you is that that can be directly tied to circadian biologi biological disruption. Yeah, so we have a lot of factors converging. Yeah, like you're staying up watching television and falling asleep in front of the TV and staring at your phone constantly and not getting sun exercise during the day, you're going to have problems. And EMF as well affects our circadian rhythms like Wi-Fi and computers and cell phones. Tell us about your, your blood chemistry software. So you can input your, your you know, CBC panel and your liver enzyme testing and get a ton of information about your health. I did it myself. I thought so, so interesting. You can get uh, recommendations for supplements and diet and lifestyle. Tell us about that a little bit more so we can take our liver enzyme tests and put it into your software. Yeah, that's right. It's called the Functional Blood Chemistry Analyzer, or FBCA. And uh, you can purchase that through the true.report website. That's true report, true.report. And basically, it's very simple. You, um, you enter in your blood test, and uh, you can put in as many or as few markers as you program to basically, basically um, output um, what's, what's, what are the, the, the problems that are showing up on the blood test. So, for example, if you put in the albumin, the ALT, the AST, the GGT, bilirubin, all the liver markers, it will um, assess those. And if any of those are out of range, out of our functional range, it will flag it. And it will give you a report, PDF report, that gets generated. And that report will give you, uh, it will, first of all, provide you with information about what each of those markers is, what it does, what the optimal ranges are. And it will also give you some basic um, recommendations, diet, lifestyle, um, supplement recommendations to help with that particular pattern that got flagged. So it assesses the liver markers, but it assesses really the whole blood test as well. Yeah. And I love this because I think people don't get enough information at their doctors about what this means and what they can do about it. They certainly don't get lifestyle and diet and supplement recommendations. So we really have to you know, go to our doctors, do certain testing, but I think it's left largely to ourselves or working with functional medical practitioners like yourself to interpret that and then to apply that to what we can do on our own health-wise because the doctor's typically only, only gonna give you medication or tell you that it's time to take your, your gallbladder out or things that we are really not wanting to do. Exactly, yeah. Patient yeah. empowerment is what we like to say. Yes, patient empowerment. Yes, well, Michael, thanks so much for joining us today to talk about liver enzyme testing and liver genetic testing. You're such a wealth of information, and I think you're a brilliant practitioner. I think anyone looking to work with a fantastic functional medical practitioner to troubleshoot their health issues, look no further. 
The Myers Detox Podcast is created and hosted by Wendy Myers. This podcast is for information purposes only. Statements and views expressed on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Wendy Myers and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.